This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Behind the Markets on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree, an ETS sponsor. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. I should note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion today is not tied to the offer of investment products. The views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree or affiliates. We've got a really special show for you today. We're going to have a guest for the hour, Andrew Lowe, who is a professor at MIT, the Sloan School of Management, and also the director of the MIT Laboratory for Financial Engineering. Uh, he's out with a new book, Adaptive Markets, which I got through this week in preparation for the show. So I'm really looking forward to talking with uh, Professor Lowe about the book, about his experience, uh, and be, we're going to have Professor Siegel on with us for the hour, also talking to, to Professor Lowe. Um, before we get to that conversation, Professor, another strong week in the markets. Uh, we see a lot more activity here from the tax front, from potentially we're getting more clarity on the Fed person. Any reaction to what you're seeing in the markets right now? Well, we, we should not fail to mention the blowout performance of the tech issues today. I mean, Amazon Wow, uh, shot the lights out, uh, catapulting uh, Jeff Bezos into the position of the world's richest man. Uh, but it's not only that. Microsoft, uh, uh, also Google, also even uh, the old tech like Intel, tech sector up 3% today uh, in the S&P 500, by far the the biggest increase, and then the tech sector is the biggest uh, sector of the S&P. So uh, uh, <laughs> we have um, uh, we have the averages hitting uh, all-time highs. Uh, we also got GDP this morning. It came in on the high side, 3%. Didn't surprise me. Now, uh, people are saying, yeah, but a lot of it was inventory buildup. Final sales were only 2-4. One should not... Uh, underestimate this number i mean this this is uh, this is remarkable to have a three percent gdp in a quarter that had hurricane irma hurricane uh, and flooding from harvey uh... which was widely expected to take almost one percentage point off of gdp uh... estimates for fourth quarter which uh, of course we're just uh, ending the first month of that are in the very high twos um, and some are actually at three so there's a question of whether we may have been sh- we may have shifted to a three percent growth economy. It's too early to say so, but certainly that's there, and that of course is putting upward pressure on yields. Uh, we saw the ten-year uh, break uh, uh, above, well above the um, the 240, uh, got up to 247 to the low 240s now. But if we're going to have stronger growth. Um, clearly, this is not going to stop the Fed from raising rates, and uh, probabilities continue to creep up for that December meeting. Now, all that said, this coming week could be one of the biggest news weeks of the year. Uh, not only is it Employment Week, which is also, you know, uh, extremely important, but this is the week that uh, President Trump promised, promised us on naming the uh, new Fed chief, of which, again, there's you know, no one's been settled on. Taylor, Yellen uh, are, are, are certainly still high in, 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 in Powell in the, in the running. So that's uh, going to be critical. I think he may also name the vice chair at the same time, and it may also come from that group of five is probably likely to come from that uh, group of five. In addition, uh, the Senate has uh, promised us the details of the tax program. So uh, that also is on November 1st. So uh, that's a, you know, that'll be a blockbuster, uh, certainly in terms of what finally is, is well, not settled on, but certainly the, the a detailed blueprint of what is, is, is coming out. 
so um, there, and by the way, there's a Fed meeting. I, 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 uh, it, no one's expecting anything to change at this meeting. Um, it's a November meeting. It's an interim meeting. Uh, but uh, the statement could reflect on uh, the doubts that many of the members have about whether inflation is coming up to the targets and um, uh, you know so far it has not so we that will also provide uh, information so wow this this week is and and of course there'll be a, a ton of earnings coming out <laughs> also uh, we're through the halfway point of a wonderful quarter in terms of earnings and clearly uh, we're going to get a lot of earnings next week on top of all these uh, really kind of earth-shattering events in terms of uh, their importance uh, to the markets. Yeah, uh, we could be have another interesting discussion next week. Um, before we uh, maybe now we could bring uh, Professor Lowe into the conversation. Um, Professor Lowe has some background from the Wharton days, uh, so welcome uh, to our our Wharton Business Radio program. I know you interacted with uh, with, with with Professor Lowe when he was at Wharton, and and uh, we're yeah, really and looking I forward to this say a few Words about that, Andy? Are you on? Uh, yes, I am. Oh, I I remember when this young assistant professor was hired by us at Wharton. Uh, everyone saw how brilliant he was, but not only was he brilliant, he was the nicest guy. I remember I got my first computer, an IBM AT, and Andy offered to come to my apartment to help me set it up <laughs> with a screwdriver. It had a massive 30 megabyte hard drive. Do you remember that, Andy? Absolutely. <laughs> and I was quite jealous because I couldn't afford such a nice computer at that time. <laughs> I don't know how many thousands they were back then, but uh, uh, it, was, it was really nice. And kind of him, we got it, we got it working. And um, actually, I think that was the computer that I wrote the first edition of Stocks for a Long Run on. So uh, certainly I, I needed that. So Andy, uh, and of course, has gone on to... Uh, wonderful career at MIT, written some really thought-provoking articles and books. And, of course, we're here uh, this afternoon to, to talk about his latest one. So, so Andy, maybe you could sort of talk through um, on this adaptive markets where you're taking, you know, this full history on the efficient markets. You now have this new theory on the adaptive markets, which has a very biological view of the world on there. Maybe you could sort of talk through how you got towards researching this new adaptive markets hypothesis and, and what set you on that path. Sure, I'd be happy to. Well, first, let me say that I'm really grateful for the opportunity to be here with both of you, particularly with uh, with uh, Professor Siegel. Jeremy was uh, incredibly kind to me when I started out at Wharton, and um, he was a, a, an inspiration and a mentor to a number of us uh, assistant professors at the time. And, and actually, I got to start thinking about these issues because of Jeremy's work on stocks in the long run, and the idea that you know we really have to think about the stock market in a very different context than just short-term day-to-day trading. Uh, it, clearly, it's the case that over a period of time, the stock market is a great way to, uh, to invest your wealth. But every once in a while, markets seem to dislocate. We have the financial crisis. We have stock market crashes, panics, and so on. And so I've been str- struggling with those kinds of events uh, over several decades now in trying to make sense of them because, on the one hand, Markets do seem pretty efficient. It seems really hard to generate excess returns and try to beat the market. At the same time, you do get these periods where people are driven more by fear and greed than by rational economic deliberation. So the idea behind the adaptive markets hypothesis is really to try to reconcile those two different perspectives in a kind of a logically consistent and um, a unified framework. Yes, and... Uh... Uh, so, Andy, what, what would you say would be the main ideas? I mean, I've also read, I have not actually finished the book, but I've read a number of the reviews on the book, and you often juxtapose it to the efficient market hypothesis. Do you, do you see this as, a, as in conflict or complementary? How does it weave in to the traditional literature that, uh, you know, we finance people have, have plugged into? Well, it's definitely not uh, in conflict. Uh, If anything, uh, what I'm hoping to do is to reconcile efficient markets, which is a great theory that works much of the time, and it's a very powerful set of ideas that we in the financial uh, academic field as well as in industry, we rely on that uh, for many, many of our models and and methods. So um, 
you know, the, the, the basic perspective that, uh, that I take in the book, and I, I have to apologize for the length. I'm not surprised you haven't finished it. It's 500 pages long. And uh, the reason that... that well, my stock's you know, so long run grew to about 600, so... <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, yeah. Yeah, that's comforting. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not too short at this point. My first edition, I think, was around 300, but it, it right. did grow. Yeah, it, it, it grew mainly because my publisher told me that for every equation I have in the book, I can divide uh, my readership by two. So uh, <laughs> I, I decided not to have a single equation in the book. It's really meant to appeal to a, a broader audience. And, you know, the, the basic thrust of the argument is that um, markets are, are not always efficient, that they don't always work the way that we would like them to. But that doesn't mean it's easy to make money. Uh, it means that markets are generally highly competitive. Uh, and people adapt. They adapt to changing market conditions. They adapt to their own circumstances that change over time as they get older and have different kinds of financial responsibilities. And so by looking at the market as more of a biological system rather than a, a physical or mechanical system, we're much uh, better equipped to be able to deal with some of these uh, anomalies instead of simply asserting that the efficient market hypothesis is true or it's false. The the, um, the the tack that I take is to to look at um, the degree of efficiency um, and try to measure circumstances that will give rise to um, accurate prices versus other circumstances, for example, fear and panic, that will cause market prices to deviate from their long-term fundamental values. So it's really a, a different way of looking at markets and relying on ideas in evolutionary biology, ecology, neuroscience, and, and even some artificial intelligence to bring together the efficient markets hypothesis with all of the various different behavioral aspects that we know are relevant for, for driving market prices. One um, quote you I wrote down is something to ask you about. And so we're talking about the efficient market hypothesis, so it's very relevant right now. Um, you had a quote that I wrote down, emerging markets hypothesis democratized finance, but it brought new risks. Maybe sort of talk about, you know, the sort of trend towards what efficient market hypothesis led into the market and sort of the passive revolution. And But what are the new risks that you think that brought alongside it? Sure. I think that's a great theme to, um, to really look at the contrast between adaptive markets and, and the traditional framework. <clears throat> so to begin with, efficient markets was an incredibly important revolution in both academic finance and in the industry, because what it said is that rather than trying to pick winners or trying to find talented managers, what the typical investor ought to be doing instead is taking for granted that market prices are pretty close to what their real underlying values ought to be. And in, instead of trying to pick the winners, focus on long-term value by putting your money in passive investment vehicles. So this is an idea that was first championed by Gene Fama, of course. Paul Samuelson made contributions. But then it was sort of put into practice by the index fund industry that really began with Wells Fargo and, and uh, John McClellan and Bill Faust. But then, of course, Jack Bogle at Vanguard was the one who really gave this impetus and, and, uh, and vision in mutual funds. And the combination of Bogle and what he did for the industry in thinking about uh, you know, using these relatively simple, low-cost passive vehicles uh, and other people who wrote about it, particularly Bert Malkiel uh, in the random walk down Wall Street and then uh, Jeremy Siegel in Stocks for the Long Run, we really began to tell investors that they ought to be taking a long-term view for their investments and focusing on keeping costs down and getting diversification. So, so that, to me, is the democratization of finance. It's taking control of your portfolio from the so-called gunslinger kind of stock picker and putting it in the hands of individual investors. And, and that's where we've been for the last maybe three or four decades. But what's been happening over the last few years is a different set of risks that have emerged. And it's really systemic risk in, in that we now have so much money going into passive investment vehicles, we've now become all kind of synchronized into experiencing the same kind of uh, investment returns because we're holding pretty much the same kind of things. And I think everybody understands the dangers of a, a, a mass exit in a crowded theater. You can't, everybody can't get out all at once. I think the same can be said for what happens when we're all piled into the same investment and we can't all get out at the same time. 
So I think that's the new concern that we have to be worried about, and uh, there are ways of dealing with it. But for now, the traditional framework has created this kind of, um, uh, of a concern that, uh, that ultimately we're going to have to address. Let me drill in on that because that's a, I get asked all the time when I give talks, you know, they say, Dr. Siegel, is there too much money in passive investments or in uh, indexed investments? And my answer is there's only going to be too much money in passive investments when we see active managers after fees outperform the passive investors. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't see that yet. Um, uh, uh, Andy, I, I'm, I'm trying to detect in your voice, do you think too much is in passive now? Uh, and and uh, what criterion would you use to, to make that judgment? No, I, I certainly wouldn't say that, that we've got too much. I think that there's simply a new kind of risk that we have to be aware of, and we have to manage that risk a bit more carefully than we have in the past. So, so you know, there's a false dichotomy that I think we in the industry have created for investors. And that false dichotomy is that active investing implies active risk management, and passive investing implies no risk management. And, you know, that's something that really came out of the technological constraints of the 1970s and 80s. The first index fund ended up being market cap weighted simply because it was hard to rebalance, uh, say, an equally weighted portfolio. The trading back office reconciliation process was very complicated in the 1970s. So the idea of an index being a market cap weighted basket that you can buy and hold and never touch, that really came out of the technological challenges of being able to actively trade these kinds of portfolios. But wasn't that also a result of efficient market? If markets were efficient, yeah. shouldn't you hold the capitalization weight right. uh, portfolio? Exactly. Yeah, that's what the capital asset pricing model and Bill Sharp told us, right? So those so, technological constraints coincided with what the theory was telling investors mm-hmm. to do. That's right. And it all lined up in the 1970s when Jack Bogle started the Vanguard Group and created the index fund. And, uh, and it, w- it worked out very well. But the idea that you can't touch uh, an index fund and manage its risk, that really also grew out of these technological constraints. But as we all know, today, technology, particularly trading and telecommunications and electronic algorithms that manage our portfolios, all of that has become much, much more sophisticated. So I think that um, we can actually do a lot to manage risk while at the same time still allowing passive vehicles to grow as they, as they should, because, uh, you know, many, many of us don't have alternatives. We, we don't know who the next Warren Buffett's going to be. We don't know who the next George Soros is going to be. So we're not going to be doing very well for ourselves by trying to pick the winners or trying to pick the best managers unless we have some sophisticated methods for doing so. And so the vast majority of investors are going to be re- uh, relying on these index funds, my point is that we simply need to now manage those risks a little bit more How do we carefully do that? than before. You know, what, what does it mean? Now, one, one thing I see, obviously, is a, a question of rebalancing. If the stock market goes up and if you have other assets in your portfolio, you may want to go back to some percentage. I, I, I understand that. But it sounds like you're talking about something more than that. Yeah, so let's ask the question, what is the biggest obstacle to investors earning a reasonable rate of return on their retirement assets. We know that if you hold stocks for the long run, they'll actually do pretty well, thanks to to you and and the the work that you've done, Jeremy. So what's the biggest obstacle to achieving that? Well, I think it's human behavior. It's that we tend to freak out when the stock market drops 10 or 20%, and it's human nature to freak out. So the issue is, uh, can we get to the long run by managing the risks of the short run. Me, and that means dialing down the volatility in our portfolio when we see volatility spike and putting back uh, that volatility when market volatility calms down. Let me just introduce our guests here. How, uh, how would we do that? How do you well, recommend the, the, the average? And by the way, I, I agree with you. I think those that uh, try, try to, you know, there's two types of active management. One is just to pick the best stocks, and the yeah. other is to time the market. Right. Uh, and it's the latter that uh, it does most people in. 
Right. Uh, it sounds right. Uh, certainly sounds like you agree with that. And I do. People who get really nervous at the market bottom. I mean, and and we, you know, that last bear market was the worst bear market in seventy five years. Fifty percent, you know, drop down. They finally said, "I can't take the pain anymore." They got out. Of course, the market has gone up three times since then. Right. Um, you're. It sounds to me you're trying to develop a way to to manage that knee-jerk reaction that could be so fatal to investors' returns. Exactly. Yeah, that, and what's interesting about that knee-jerk reaction is that the deadly part of it is actually not getting out. The deadly part is waiting too long and not getting back in. So, so here's an interesting yeah, simulation right, that I think you know, it's really easy to try. Imagine uh, running a simulated portfolio where any time – the trailing six-month return declines by more than, say, 15%, uh, you go to cash. Um, and if you run that simulation, obviously that's going to be pretty bad because you know, when markets go down, eventually they do recover and come back up. And if you're in cash, you're going to miss out on that. So if you were to come up with a rule that says, all right, anytime that rule gets me into cash and it gets triggered, I'm going to wait a fixed period of time. Let's call it, I don't know, eight months. And I'm going to get back in after eight months. It turns out that if you stick to that rule, in other words, if you get out when you lose a lot of money, but then you get back in after a fixed period of time, it turns out that that actually doesn't do so bad. And there are certain cases where that can even do better than buy and hold. What really kills investors is that they get out and they stay out Right. And they stay out way too long. Uh, and the point I made, I, 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 in the, and of course, we've just had that 30th uh, anniversary, as you know, a stock market crash. Yeah. And I, I, I told the story for many years about people who were so proud. They said, oh, I got out before the, the crash. And then when I questioned them more, they never got back in. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the market was way higher than it was, you know, before the crash. Right, um, uh, and you know they still love to tell the story about how great they were getting out before right. the crash. They don't like to tell the story about when they got back in. Right, and you're you're saying you know you're you're sort of forcing you to 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 get back in at some time. Now this sort of you know one of the te- there's all sorts of technical rules, and one of the ones that is very very popular, um, and actually I do an extensive test of that. Mm-hmm. Um, in my book, stocks for the long run, is the uh, is the 200-day moving average. Right there, when it breaks below that, and I know it's arbitrary in terms of you know many of the you know uh, you know anything theoretical, but uh, that's when it starts going down enough so it breaks below there, and you stay below there until it comes up. Now you're going to miss the bottom, but you're not going to miss the bottom by much. It starts that's right. coming up, and at, at at you get in way before you would if you. Just listen to your emotions because it was so scary on the way down that you say, hey, I'm not touching this until, you know, the skies are totally blue again. Right. Um, but it, it echoes a way of, of that 200-day uh, moving average about you get out and then it forces you to get back in way before emotion would probably let you get back in had you been listening to that. Right. So, Jeremy, I think you and I are the only two academics that actually read and have some interest in the technical analysis literature. Right. Um, you're absolutely right that um, looking at these kinds of moving averages and basing your trading decisions on how they change, both on the downside and on the upside, that's really what many traditional technical analysts have done, and one of the reasons why certain kinds of technical trading rules persist to this day, and, and a number of traders swear by them. It, it provides them a discipline for being able to not only get out, but also to force themselves to get back in, because typically yeah, right. our emotions do not want us to put our hand back in the fire. And of course, that's actually good things when it comes to fires, but it's not so good when it comes to financial context, where we really do need to get back into the game in order to uh, generate returns for our retirement. Uh, Professor Lowe, so one of, in your, you know, in talking about these, um, going away for this sort of market timing, you, you talked about going away from just beta, uh, and you had a section on smart beta, dumb sigma, and sort of these dynamic indexes, uh, and sort of, I think you talked about dynamic indexes as these indexes that can rebalance, or this sort of timing element. Do you have a preference there as you think about what 
you should do instead of just being in the market? Do you are you a, do you have this preference for these more dynamic timing strategies, or is it also with a stock selection focus that you're that you're trying to you think that investors should think about? Well, so I think the answer really depends upon the level of sophistication and uh, time commitment uh, for the particular investor. So the typical individual investor, a librarian, a pharmacist, a, a, a doctor, they're not going to have time to watch the markets and manage their portfolio as actively as, uh, as, as, as we would as finance academics. Uh, and so I would say that keeping it simple is probably important. But in doing so, you don't want it to be simpler than it, than it should be. You want to be able to manage your risk so that you don't freak out. And that could be done in a number of different ways. You can uh, create um, some kind of a dynamic portfolio. There are products that I think are in the, either in the works or available now where there are their volatility managed so that when the volatility goes up, you, st- you scale back. When the volatility goes down, you, you, you get back in. Um, so for typical investors that don't have the time and inclination to watch the markets and try to come up with fancy algorithms to manage their risks, that might be a good option. On the other hand, for professional portfolio managers, I think there's actually a lot of things that could be done now to adapt trading strategies to take into account these kinds of risks. Market timing, as Jeremy Siegel said, is very difficult to do. Uh, I, I, there, there are a very, very small number of talented hedge fund managers that can successfully time the market, so I would not urge anybody to take that on. However, volatility timing is a different matter. In other words, it's, it's very difficult to predict whether the market's going to go up or down tomorrow. But if volatility spikes tomorrow, most likely it will stay high for a period of time before it comes back down. And so if you try to change your portfolio based upon whether you think the market's going to go up or down, you're not going to do very well. But if you scale your portfolio as a function of market volatility, scaling back when the volatility shoots up and then putting that uh, market exposure back on when the volatility comes down, you'll, won't, you won't be able to capture every benefit because you can't forecast the exact moment when, when volatility spikes, but you can be sure that when volatility does spike, it'll stay high for a period of time. So it's like closing the barn doors after maybe 30% of your horses are gone. You won't save all of them, but you'll save 70% of them. Well, this is great. Um, we're going to have to take a short break here, um, but we're going to be continuing our conversation with Professor Lowe. After the break, I'm Jeremy Schwartz. We've got Professor Jeremy Siegel here and Andrew Lowe from MIT. You're listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 111. We'll be back after a short break. You're listening to Behind the Markets on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, along with my co-host, Warren Professor Jeremy Siegel. We're talking to MIT professor, former Wharton professor, Andrew Lowe. He's the author of Adaptive Markets, Financial Evolution at the Speed of Thought. And just before the break, we were talking about uh, a regime or volatility targeting as one way that Professor Lowe thinks you can sort of adjust the portfolio based on volatility levels in the market. Uh, and, and Andy, when you think about volatility today, you know, volatility today, sort of the, the VIX as a fear gauge that people call it, you know, volatility today is at record low levels. So if you were targeting a certain level of volatility, you probably would be levering up your portfolio today to get to these sort of target volatility. I'm, I'm curious how widespread you think these volatility targeted strategies are. If there's a certain level of volatility, of course, every individual is going to have their own risk preferences. But what do you think is sort of the most common that people should be targeting compared to just sort of the standard volatility approaches that people take uh, as sort of one of the maybe the as we get back in the conversation on, on how you think people should use dynamic index strategies? Yeah, so that's a great question, and uh, you know, I want I want Jeremy Siegel to weigh in on it as well because I know that he's got some thoughts about long-term trends and volatility. But what's going on right now <clears throat> is that there have been a lot of vol- volatility-based strategies that are not necessarily designed for retail investors, but they actually have a big impact on the marketplace, and so that's another aspect that we have to worry about. So one example is so-called risk parity strategies. Uh, this is a strategy that. Uh, tries to take the same amount of volatility in all of these various different asset classes rather than taking, say, the same dollar amount or the uh, market cap weighted. It's a different way of weighting different asset classes. And risk parity strategies 
could actually be contributing to what we're seeing now in historic low levels of market volatility because you know, as market volatility goes down, a risk parity strategy is going to want to take more market exposure in order to top up that level of volatility due to equities. And so you know, these kinds of strategies have very broad implications for the market as a whole, one of which is it does tend to dampen down market volatility in ways that could be misleading. So I would not advocate leveraging up your portfolio tremendously because volatility is low. If anything, I would argue that the actual volatility that we're likely to see over the course of the next year or two is quite likely to be higher than the volatility that we're seeing now in measures like the VIX index, which measures implied volatility based upon S&P 500 options. But, but I, I want to hear what uh, Jeremy Siegel has to say about this. Well, that, that's interesting. And, 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 and uh, Andy, do you say that because you're looking at political and or economic risks going forward? Uh, but, that, but as you think about that, um, just to back up a minute, because the, the low level of the VIX, the low level of realized, uh, not only realized probability, but as you say, it's implied in the, in the short, very short run options. One should also say these are not, you know, three, four or five year options. Um, these are very short run, uh, options. Um, a lot of people have been asking why, why is it so? Um, sometimes I bring them the, the, uh, answer, well, we economists have been saying that the stock market is too volatile for the last four thirty years. Um, uh, uh, you know, uh, ever since the the article about the equity risk premium uh, that was uh, that you know was was way too high given the actual volatility. So I sometimes tongue in cheek say, you know, people are wising up. You know, given present values of earnings or dividends going forward, we should not have the volatility that, you know, we've, we've seen. Other people have brought up the fact that, um, you know, we, after the financial crisis, our banks are, have so much excess reserves, there isn't as much instability in, uh, or potential instability. We're sort of um, so liquid now, of course, with interest rates being so down, flood of liquidity that, that a shock that, that threatens uh, bankruptcy and volatility of, of, of equities is lower than we might have uh, known elsewhere. So that's a, uh, another way of looking. Another one, one is that uh, uh, that business cycles are just. You now we had that big crash on, of course, the financial crisis. We had 20 years of very moderate business cycles before then, um, and that that actually. Um, we may be back into a 20-year period of moderate business cycles that would lead towards less equity. I'm throwing out reasons. I'd like to know what you think, Andy, about you know what some reasons for that low volatility is. And do you think there's some real reasons there, or do you think it's just the behavior of people that are 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 just not moving actively in and out uh, on a daily or weekly basis? The market. Well, so I agree with all of the factors that you mentioned, and uh, I, I think what you're getting at is the fact that it isn't just one thing, but it's probably a confluence of several different factors. So let me mention a few others that uh, very much uh, are along the lines of what you mentioned. So first, economic growth. I mean, clearly this uh, most recent GDP uh, announcement of 3% is very good news for the U.S. economy. And when you compare how we're doing relative to the rest of the world, uh, it actually looks pretty good here. So it's not surprising that a lot of foreign investors as well as domestic investors want to put their money in our stock market. And that's one of the reasons why our stock market has done so well post-crisis. But that's also the reason why volatility is lower. It's one of the reasons. And it, that has to do with an old idea that Fisher Black uh, came up with years ago called the leverage effect. Uh, the idea is that if you've got a company that's got both equity and debt in its capital structure, as the value of the equity goes up, the amount of leverage that the company is facing obviously goes down. It's sort of like you know having a house. If you put a down payment down of a fixed amount and the value of the home goes up, as the value of that home goes up, the amount of leverage that you're facing is lower. Uh, and so that means that the volatility of your equity is going to be lower. This is an inverse relationship with, between equity levels and equity market volatility. So that's one example, one reason. But I think there's another reason, which is that 
because of these volatility-based strategies that hedge funds and uh, other kinds of uh, investors are deploying, uh, that's providing a kind of an anti-volatility type of a push to, to bring the volatility down. And here's where I get worried. Those kinds of strategies are all on hair triggers, meaning that if there is a geopolitical event, say uh, we have a problem with North Korea with uh, their nuclear program, or there's a conflagration that happens in Syria or in uh, northern Africa and we're drawn into it, that could quickly change a lot of these algorithms to the point where we have a very significant market uh, downturn. And I think that because all of the various different kinds of investors and investment strategies are technologically more sophisticated today than before, money will whip around that much more quickly. And so we can actually see a pretty significant amount of whipsawing in the markets because of these differences in the way we're trading versus what we used to do 10 or 20 years ago. When you when you think about you know taking that these these discussions and how do you translate to your own investment strategies your own personal way of, of investing, I mean how would you describe your own portfolio? Would you you know when you think about equities, bonds, hedge funds? I know you've been a proponent of hedge funds over time, and you were involved in a hedge fund group at one point. I mean, do you have a sort of target asset allocation? I mean, how do you sort of take these lessons and, and apply it to the real world for people? Well, so I'm probably not a good example for the typical investor because uh, I started an asset management company years ago, Alpha Simplex Group, and so a significant amount of my money is invested in the kind of products and services that we offer, and we do provide uh, you know, fairly uh, sophisticated dynamic trading strategies where we take into account these kinds of uh, volatility shifts. But overall, I've, the, the vast majority of my assets are in, in, invested in equities of various different types as well as dynamic trading strategies, but also in other asset classes. So I look at the world of investments as being much broader than the typical stocks and bonds that most investors focus on. We've got stocks, bonds, currencies, commodities, real estate, private equity. There's a whole spectrum of different assets that one really ought to look at, just like you want to have a balanced diet and focus on many different food groups. Investors, I think, need to focus on many different food groups. The challenge, of course, for the typical investor is that they don't necessarily have access to the same kinds of sophisticated opportunities that professional money managers do. So I think working with a financial advisor is probably a good idea, uh, particularly those that are, are fee-only so that they don't have an incentive to uh, churn portfolios. But, uh, but all financial advisors have expertise that they can provide to their clients. And so I would urge you know, individuals who don't have the kind of time and inclination to be able to do the kinds of things that, uh, that Jeremy Siegel and, and, and I and others are able to do, to focus instead on investing in as broad a diversification as they can and uh, over uh, you know, a, a, an extended period of time so that they can actually reap the benefits of these kinds of uh, returns. One of the questions online came for you, knowing about your involvement in Alpha Simplex, there's a question about managed future strategies as one of the strategies that both you guys employ there, but then generally that concept, which has been very out of favor, um, and that's, it's also tied to that technical losses trend following that we were talking about in the first part of the segment. Any yeah. view on what's been happening in managed futures generally? Is it still an asset class you really like capacity-wise, and has it just not been working because it's uncorrelated to the market and the market's up, or do you right. think there's something broken there? Well, so, yeah, first let me mention as a disclaimer that I'm not a registered representative, and so I'm also not here to push any products yeah. of mine. And so um, I, I'm going to focus purely on the, the more academic and broader perspective. Yeah. So managed futures, I think, is a good asset class because it offers investors an alternative risk-reward profile from the typical stock-bond kind of investments. That being said, managed futures does also have certain sophisticated kinds of risks that not all investors are equipped to deal with. For, for example, they make use of futures contracts, which are leveraged instruments. And by nature, leveraged instruments are going to be able to move in sometimes unpredictable and sharp ways that typical equity uh, investments don't behave. And so managed futures do offer interesting kinds of returns, particularly in equity market downturns, so-called crisis alpha, as my former student and uh, portfolio manager in her own right, uh, Katie Kaminsky, has written about. Um, this kind of crisis alpha means that you've got uh, investment returns that are not very highly correlated with the S&P. And so you're going to get that benefit when markets go down. 
when markets are going up, managed futures will probably underperform. So it's that kind of a trade-off that people have to be aware of. And uh, you know, if investors are not really fully aware of the underlying instruments and how they work in a managed futures fund, I would recommend that they probably uh, shy away from that uh, unless they have a financial advisor that can really look out for them and explain exactly what kind of risks we're looking at. Uh, Andy, if I, if I could also, I'm going to circle back because discussion is really bringing up some interesting issues. Um, uh, as, as I mentioned earlier, we, we just passed the 30th anniversary of uh, Black Monday, uh, October 19, 1987, the biggest single-day decline that we had. What is interesting, in, in lieu of some of the discussion we've just had over maybe the last five minutes, um, is that there was a dynamic strategy. You know it well. It used to be called portfolio insurance, which was selling S&P futures. It was sort of a replicating a put in a way that was supposed to insure the portfolio against the downturn. Um, a, a lot of people, and, and I'm wondering if you think a similar risk is building up now, uh, a lot of institutional managers were not selling in 1987 as yields went way up, and, and the models said you should be moving out of uh, stocks into bonds or reallocating because they said, oh, I don't have to worry, I'm, I'm protected by portfolio insurance, uh, and they kept on buying uh, as the 10-year yield went from 7 to over 10%. Um, and then finally, when that 10% uh, decline was reached on the Friday before Black Monday, you know, all hell broke loose. Um, I, I, and it's very, are you saying that there is a potential for that today in either risk parity or the dynamic trading that, it, as you said, it could come all at once, once a certain threshold uh, comes about and everyone then tries to sell. Do you is there, is there a potential of a similar risk there? I, I think that there is a potential for a, a risk of that sort, but I want to be careful uh, by uh, distinguishing between that kind of risk, which was a very clear single set of strategies that all pointed in the same direction kind of a risk, versus where we are right now. I think we're actually facing three or four different kinds of risks, each of which may be along the same lines. So, you know, the case in point of portfolio insurance is a good example of uh, unintended consequences. That was a situation where uh, a particular firm put together a very useful strategy that essentially tried to replicate uh, a, a kind of a, an insurance contract uh, on uh, one's portfolio. But it was a, a replication of a, an insurance contract that, uh, that was imperfect. They, they, they couldn't get it exactly right. So it was, it was kind of like insurance, except, of course, when you really needed it most. And then it, it broke down on, on October the 19th, 1987. And so since that time, though, we've got the, the emergence of S&P 500 options, uh, which really is like an insurance contract, uh, that's, been, uh, that's been taken care of. But as you know better than I do, uh, based upon the calculations that you've done, those kinds of insurance contracts can be very expensive. So to literally ensure that you will not lose more than, say, 3% in your equity portfolio, if you really wanted to lock in that kind of a, a potential loss and make sure that you don't lose more than 3%, it can actually be quite expensive to pay the insurance premium for that type of protection. So uh, I think that there are other ways of being able to reduce your exposures by diversifying across asset classes to be able to lower the chances that you get hit with it, but, but you can't reduce it to zero un unless you pay these exorbitant fees. But, but to get to your point about the risks that exist out there, so the kind of risks are not necessarily related to portfolio insurance, but they are related to different kinds of investment strategies that could go awry, one of which is risk parity. If it turns out that volatility spikes very quickly over the next couple of days, let's say, then the risk parity strategies will all be looking to dump stock in order to reduce their volatility, which has spiked because they're holding equities. So that's an example of a coordinated uh, a set of actions, uh, people rushing for the exits and creating uh, this kind of a fire sale type of a reaction that would cause markets to drop even further. 
So that's one example. Another risk that we're facing is the potential for flash crashes. May 6, 2010, for about 15 minutes, a number of very large and well-known and well-traded stocks became penny stocks for a few minutes and then went right back up to the prices that they were trading before. And, you know, it's been about seven years since that flash crash. And while there have been a number of studies and various different government investigations, to this day, we still don't know exactly what happened, how it happened, why it happened, and what we can do to prevent it from happening again. And, you know, as a testament to that kind of, of uncertainty, we've had flash crashes in currencies, in treasury markets, in ETFs. Uh, and just a few months ago, we had a flash crash in these de- cryptocurrencies, uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum. So that's a second example of the kind of risks that we're facing today that didn't exist 10 or 20 years ago, thanks to technological innovation. We just need to be aware of those kinds of risks. Yeah, uh, that, that too. But it, 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 is, it, is, uh, it, it is interesting, as, as we're talking, you know, that portfolio insurance lulled people into thinking they had an insurance policy in place that you could buy and sell S&P futures, any quantity, any amount, it was totally liquid. And, of course, when everyone rushes to the exits, uh, you know, that, that futures was selling 22% below the index. Right. Both assets were kind of frozen, but, uh, the, you know, that sort of uh, uh, situation, which wasn't dreamed of by the in, in original inventors of that portfolio insurance, of course, did happen uh, right. at that particular at that particular juncture. Now, anybody just, who's looked at that probably remembers it quite well. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was teaching it that, you know, I, I taught my students, they were, you know, and they're, they're undergraduates, and I said, you were not born here, but I was <laughs> teaching um, at Wharton <laughs> during that period. And again, you know, trying to explain what had, what had happened on that day and what, you know, couldn't happen. Now, we do have circuit breakers now, in, and actually as a result of that flash crash, that we had on, uh, you know, um, several years ago. Um, there's actually circuit breakers in individual stocks, so we 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 really couldn't have those blue chips selling at pennies um, again. There would be a, a a a one minute or two minute break where they would gather as many bids as they can and then clear it. So, right. uh, you know, I mean, I do. We all know the potential of circuit breakers to make things worse. Uh, in the sense that people worry about you're going to get toward the circuit breaker, I've got to get out even faster, and that becomes a magnet rather than a uh, a period where people can get the bids together. So it's certainly not a, a cure-all to it, but uh, the, you know certain certain uh, uh, procedures have been put into place. I want to take the conversation, professors, uh, both Lo and Siegel, into one final area. We've got about five, six minutes left. Um, and there's a few different topics I wanted to get to. But uh, one topic that I thought um, that I sort of appreciated as you close, it's a very different part of the conversation. But as you think about the adaptive markets, you think about what financial engineering is doing, what you're focused on at MIT, uh, Andy, you close the book with a, a fairly sort of moving story on, on where you think you think financial engineering can go. And you, and you sort of talked about um, – research in cancer and how you want to sort of take financial engineering to solve those things. Maybe you could sort of talk a little bit about that, uh, that element of the book. Sure. Yeah, that's something that is a relatively recent interest of mine. And uh, it came about because a number of friends and my mother were dealing with various kinds of cancer. And uh, I remember thinking about what, what, what I could do as an economist to try to help out. And other than sitting with friends and family in waiting rooms and trying to be sympathetic, uh, cancer patients need an economist about as much as a fish needs a 401k plan. I just, you know, felt pretty useless. And uh, then the more I looked into the business of cancer drug development, it, it became clear to me that there is a real bottleneck right now. We've got all these incredible breakthroughs in uh, the science and uh, the medicine of how to deal with cancer, and yet these doctors and and engineers are having a hard time getting the funding that they need to take ideas out of the lab and into the clinic. I mean, there's plenty of money for buying cancer companies, so you see lots of trading and IPOs and uh, M&A activity in the pharma industry, but at the early stages of drug development, I'm talking about at the university level and then at phase one clinical trials where you're just starting to take ideas out of the lab and into the clinic. It's really, really hard for these young assistant professors in in biomedicine to get funding. And it seemed kind of crazy to me 
that uh, that would be an issue, given how smart they are, the fact that they're working so hard to help the rest of us, we ought to be able to give them the money that they need. The, the, the problem is that um, they need to earn a rate of return you know, for investors on that money. And so what I've been looking into over the course of the last few years is, can we structure new business models, uh, new portfolio methods to manage biomedical risk and uncertainty so that investors can get a good rate of return on their investments and we can get much, much more funding to be able to develop these therapies and uh, save patient lives. So um, the preliminary results uh, that we've been developing in our analysis show that, in fact, you can. You can actually deploy tremendously larger amounts of capital in the drug development world if you structure it in the right way and are able to get that kind of portfolio diversification to reduce the risk and increase the uh, risk-adjusted expected return of these kind of projects. So do you see progress being made there? Is that something you're, you have a team working on? Do you have initiatives? I mean, how do people get involved there? Well, so, you know, my background is in finance. I don't have an MD or a PhD in molecular biology. If I did, I'd quit my job right now and start one of these large mega funds myself. So what I've been focusing on with my students and, and co-authors is in developing the kind of scientific research on the financial and business end of things to demonstrate what kinds of models could work in the industry and then showing these results to various different uh, stakeholders in the biomedical community and getting them together to explore ways of creating these funds. So it's starting now. There are a number of organizations that have begun to put together these so-called mega funds and portfolio structures to invest in multiple shots on goal, to use a hockey term. And uh, the preliminary results suggest that they actually are doing what they're supposed to be doing, which is reducing the risk and allowing these biomedical innovators to be able to spread their risks across many, many different kinds of investments. And, and hopefully over the next five or ten years, we're going to be actually be seeing better and, and more effective therapies coming online because of these kinds of financing methods. That's great stuff. Um, we're in our final two-minute countdown here for the show. Um, we talked about a lot of different topics from your book, uh, Adaptive Markets, Financial Evolution at the Speed of Thought. Any closing thoughts or anything you're focused on at MIT that you want the, uh, the audience to know about? Well, I guess I'd like to close with the thought that you know the financial crisis was a terribly frustrating, upsetting, catastrophic event for many people and their families. And I think the reaction, not surprisingly, is that people are really frustrated with finance and feel that uh, it's really unproductive. And I think I want to caution listeners not to cut off their noses to spite their faces. Finance still plays an incredibly important role. Um, we can do a lot of good uh, by using finance properly. Finance doesn't have to be a zero-sum game if we don't let it. And uh, I think we can do well by doing good if we think about the right ways of applying these very powerful ideas. Well, that is a great way to end the program. Uh, Professor Lowe, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you. And thank you, Jeremy Siegel. Appreciate uh, being here with you. It's been, it's been a pleasure reconnecting with you. We've seen each other at a few conferences, but thanks for sharing your ideas. It's always stimulating. Pleasure. Uh, you've been listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 111. Thanks to our producer, Patricia Hall, our sound engineer, Daniel Bruno. You can also listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.